You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's word will always stand true. Hello, friends, faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, July the 24th, episode number 126, John's Testimony, John 1, 18 through 22. In our last study, we interviewed Brother Josh Ritchie. Our topic was concerning Christian education, and we had a wonderful conversation. We talked about Brother Ritchie's desire to help people in Christian education to find resources that will undergird them in all of their efforts. Brother Josh is starting a podcast for this, and he is also teaching piano by online courses. We believe this informative episode will be helpful to you in many ways, and we pray it is a blessing as well. In today's episode, we discuss the confusing phrase, No man hath seen God at any time. We focus mainly on John's testimony of Christ and how the Jews came and questioned him, but John told them the truth. He confessed that he wasn't the Christ, Elijah, nor that prophet. They asked him, Who art thou? They needed an answer to take back to those who sent them, and we believe John gave them the perfect answer. This study is a great eye-opener for how we should look at ourselves. We feel you will enjoy it. Now for the lesson and the teaching of God's Word. Turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. We certainly want to thank you for joining us today. We love the fact that you're tuning in and that you're listening to God's Word. I feel like that we've got a really good study lined up for today. Well, I sure hope so. Uh, If we don't, we'd be wasting our time and the time of the audience as well. Yeah, but we're going to be talking about the testimony of John today, so I don't feel like there will be many who find that as a waste of time. No, I'd like to think everyone sees the importance of a good testimony. That's true, and for all of us who have been saved, we have a testimony as well. You know, years ago, you'd hear people talk about living carefully so they wouldn't mar their good testimony. Your testimony is tightly linked to your reputation. That is right, and I believe we still need to be very careful for how we live for those same reasons. John's testimony is somewhat different from the kind of testimonies we hear at church. Yeah, and that's mainly for two really distinct reasons. Number one, John's whole life was a testimony. Secondly, testimonies we hear at church can be more of a five-minute ramble than someone telling about Jesus Christ. No joke. I can already see that you're geared up and ready to plow today. (laughs) You got that right. I'm actually chomping at the bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't you go ahead and get it started with John's testimony? I will, but for a moment, I thought you was about to give us your testimony instead. (laughs) All right, I'm going to begin with reading verse 18, and then we'll get started. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John begins verse 18 with what I consider as one of the most amazing statements made in the New Testament, and it's reiterated over and over within the whole Bible, not only just the New Testament, but the whole Bible. Let me take you through the Bible quickly. 
Exodus 33 and 20. And he said, thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Deuteronomy 4 and 12, and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice. John chapter 5 and verse 37, and the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. John 6 and 46, not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. 1 Timothy 1 and 17, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6 and 16, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. 1 John 4 and 12, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. 1 John 4 and 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? What do you think is so amazing about John's statement here? Well, it's mainly because we know that John began his gospel by telling us that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Then John explains how we have seen him. And then here in verse 18, he says that no man has seen God at any time. Oh, you're bringing up a valid point. Well, this ought to tell us something here. Number one, has John lost his mind 18 verses into his gospel account? Is he wrong? Is John misinformed about something? Well, it's it's because of things like this that people ask, does the Bible contradict itself? Well, some people will use things like this. And let me explain something right here. John must be speaking directly of the Father when he's referring to God right here. There were manifestations of God in the Old Testament where he appeared or revealed himself to people in certain ways, but they were only partial revelations at the best. In reality, it's disputable as to how much of God they actually saw. Did they see God's person or did they see God's presence? Did they see the essence of God or did they see a physical being that they could call God? So you're saying people might have seen God in some form, but not in all his glory. Specifically speaking of the Father, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. The verb that we have translated here as to see denotes a physical act, but it also includes the mental discernment that accompanies it. So that means that we should be able to understand it this way. For in this method, we've all seen God. Yeah, you're right, because we see God at work in our lives. Amen. And that means that we have seen evidence that he is with us. We have evidence that he's working for us. He's working in our lives. All of this is true, but it's also just as true that we have not seen God at any time in his person. No one has ever seen a figure that they could state with surety, there's God. That's true. Jesus told us in John 12 and 45 and in John 14 and 7 through 9 that by seeing him, in essence, we have also seen the Father. This is how we've seen God and his glory. It's through his son. Simply stated, Jesus is the revealer of God unto man. That's true. And the next portion of this verse is among the most difficult to understand, if you want my opinion. The statement of which I'm speaking is that part where it says the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. My problem isn't with the phrase, the only begotten son, nor is it in the part of who declared who. I don't believe it's talking about the father declared the son or the son declared the father. That's not what my problem's with right here. Then what is the problem that you see with it? The difficulty is in the phrase that states that the son is in the bosom of the father. 
This is written from a standpoint of being in the past all the while while Jesus was on the earth at that very moment. Some people teach that Jesus was still in the bosom of the Father in heaven while he was physically here on earth. Does this mean that he was literally still in heaven when he was here on earth? Well, some say this simply means that Jesus was in God's heart, therefore he was in his bosom. Yeah, I can tell you're not sold on that option. No, I'm not. Is John writing in the past tense and then switching to the present tense of his day? Is that what's going on here? Is this telling us that Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father today, declared him while he was here on earth? All of this can be a little confusing, but we know it wasn't meant to be mysterious. No, and I don't believe that it's meant to be mysterious. I don't believe it's supposed to be as hard to understand as it really seems like it is. And I don't believe it's here to set forth any kind of new doc. Well, how should we understand this? Well, I want to look at each part as we move through this verse and break it down. Number one, John speaks much about the Word being the only begotten Son. For proof of this, go back to John 1 and 14, where it says that we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says that no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That's the verse we're looking at right now. In John 3 and 16, he's called his only begotten son, the only begotten son of God. And then in verse 18, it reiterates the point again. And then 1 John 4 and 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. So we see that phrase over and over many times throughout scripture. If you'll remember, the Greek word monogenes is the only begotten, and it can also be defined as unique or the one and only son. The Greek word huios, which is son, carries the sense that this is speaking of a son in particular, one who is of a different kind. Thus, this is how we get the one and only interpretation. It's a specific son. It isn't just a random son. It isn't like you've got 14 sons and just any of them will do. I think you might find this intriguing. But some of the main manuscripts in the Greek do not have the only begotten son here. Oh, really? What do they have? What they have is God, the only begotten. To me, this is truly fascinating in one way. And then in another way, this is still exactly what's being said by John, no matter which interpretation you prefer. The only begotten is the word who was God. Therefore, he is the only begotten. This would mean that God is the only begotten, and he's seen in the Son. This is still speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not speaking of the Father. The begotten means the one that come from. So we know that it's speaking of two different persons here. The next word that might seem a little bit insignificant to you, but we need to look at it, and it's the Greek word is. We need to look at the definition of is. Oh, great. Now you're starting to sound like Bill Clinton. It matters what your definition of is, is. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to sound like Bill Clinton, and I definitely ain't trying to live like him. The Greek word is right here. It comes from the word Amy. Amy means to be, or better yet, it means to exist. Now, let's apply that to the wording of our text. The only begotten son exists in the bosom of the father. Now, that gives us a little more understanding here. Uh, maybe so. But it also makes things a little more complicated in a way. I understand. And the word speaks of something that exists. And in this case, what it's speaking of is the sun. The sun exists. This existence is speaking of a continual existence or a continual state of being. So let me put it in plainer speech for you. 
The Son has always existed in the bosom of the Father. He exists now in the bosom of the Father, and He will always exist in the bosom of the Father. Okay, I'm following what you mean now. Because of this one Greek word, Amy, it helps us understand the extraordinary claim that John made, which we wondered if it could even be true. So this is an expression of the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son. That's true. And it could also be speaking of how after the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, that Jesus and the Father resumed their unhindered fellowship as it had been from the beginning. Now, this is not to say that their fellowship was broken or hindered in any form. It was interrupted might be the better way to say that when he came to earth. It wasn't the same as it always had been. Now for the last statement of this verse, he hath declared him. Is this speaking of God declaring Christ? Is this speaking of Christ declaring the Father? Is this possibly John the Baptist declaring the identity of the Son? Well, good questions. Personally, I don't think there's really even an issue with who is who here. You brought some valid questioning up, but there's no doubt in my mind that this must be speaking of Christ, the Word who has declared the Father to the people. The people didn't truly know who God was, so Christ came to reveal God unto man. The word for declared here is the Greek exegeme. Exegeme means to tell something fully. It means to provide detailed information to make something fully known. You would get exegeme from the church gossip, okay? (laughs) They would make sure you get all the details. That's what the word means. He's told us all there was to know about the Father. This is where we get the word exegesis from. And that means to interpret or to explain something. Just think about what this means when you put it all together. To give the exegesis of Scripture is to tell the Scriptures fully. It's to provide detailed information about the Bible and to make the Scriptures fully known. Do you give the exegesis of the Scriptures when you preach? I sure try my best to do that, but that also tells us something more here. Jesus is the explanation of who God himself is. If you want an interpretation of who and what God is, look at Jesus. Amen. Well, we see this idea expressed back in John 3 and 32. Let me grab that real quick. And what he hath seen and heard that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Jesus is only telling us those things he's seen and heard. And guess what? He's seen it all and he's heard it all. (laughs) So he's going to tell us fully. Once again, that shows us that the word exegeme truly means to fully give the information needed. Now, we're fixing to be moving out of what is known as the prologue of John and into the main portion of the book from here. Everything that follows will be hinged from the information that John gave us in the first 18 verses here in the prologue. In his prologue, he speaks of the word in no less than five specific ways. Jesus is the eternal word. We see that in John 1 and 1 through 3. Jesus is the incarnate word, John 1 and 4 through 5. Jesus is the unrecognized word in John 1 and 9 through 11. Jesus is the omnipotent word in John 1 and 12 and 13. And then Jesus is the glorious word in John 1 and 14 through 18. Only verses 6, 7, and 8 are about anything other than Jesus, and it's only explaining that John came to be the forerunner of the word and to be a witness to the word. Now I want to go into verse 19 and look at it real quickly. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? John starts verse 19 by telling us that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to question John about something. They asked him who he was. 
A lot of people get confused concerning when they see John because they wonder, is this John the Beloved, the disciple, or John the Baptist? This is definitely speaking of John the Baptist. I agree. We read the record of John, his testimony, and his witness there in verse 15, and we also see it in John 5 and 33, because Jesus attested to John's witness of him. And this is the Greek word martyria, which is just another form of martyreo, which we've already seen earlier in our studies last week. There's much argument right here over who is meant by the term Jews. Most people think this is any and all Hebrew people from Israel. That's true, and the Jewish people strongly oppose this view, along with many scholars. It's believed that this is a specific group from within the people of Israel. This is a group that John takes a swing at often. He does, and the word that John uses here is better translated as Judeans instead of actually Jews. But the translators knew that Judea was in Israel, and they relegated it to the Jews to cover the whole nation. Some people believe that this is speaking of the ruling caste, and more specifically, this speaks of the Sanhedrin and those who followed them, going back to like John 3 and 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and that word Jews right there means the ruling class. John uses the word Iodeus. Iodeus is used multiple times and in many different ways, but John's normal use always carries the sense of unbelieving Jews. What do you think John did this for? Why did he specify this particular group in this way? Well, I personally believe that his usage of this word is a spiritual usage and not racial. I don't believe that John's trying to distinguish between race here. I believe that he's mainly speaking in spiritual terms. Well, that makes sense because John, John the Baptist and Jesus were all Jews as well. They absolutely were. And another thing that I want to point out is that John usually distinguished between the multitude who was present and the Jews who were present. And they were all Jewish people, so he does that for a reason. Most likely, the Jews refer to the Judeans who were staunch followers of Judaism and ultimately the ones who rejected Christ all the way to the end. It's also attributed to the Jews as being the ones guilty of the crucifixion of our Lord. Either way, this group sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to interview John. Yeah, and that's pretty big news right here. According to history, the Sanhedrin would only do this when they believed that they had found a candidate who could possibly be the Messiah. They must have fully thought it conceivable that they had a new deliverer in their ranks. By them coming from Jerusalem, this means that they were coming from the temple. This means that they gave John an interview from a religious standpoint and from a political standpoint. The priest and the Levites were the official religious leaders of the temple in Jerusalem. It was them who was holding the power throughout all Israel. The question they asked him was simple. Who are you? Yeah, it seemed like it'd be easy to answer that. Yeah. John understood their question, but because he didn't just simply answer them, I'm John, the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth, it began to throw them for a loop. He knew exactly what they were thinking or implying with their questions. That's true, and that naturally leads us into our next verse, and I want to go ahead and read that right here. Matter of fact, let me go ahead and read verse 20 through 22. And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? In verse 20, John confessed and denied not. 
He confessed that he was not the Christ. I like it that this verse states twice that John confessed his answer. This shows that he was very emphatic in his response. He gave them an absolute answer that left no ambiguity. He answered their question in such a way it left no one guessing. That's right. When it says that he confessed, John uses the Greek word homologio. Homologio is defined as to acknowledge or to make an emphatic assertion. So he was strongly saying, absolutely not. No, I am not. A good example of this is found in 1 John 2 and 23, where this same word is interpreted as acknowledge. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. This is your same word right here, homologio. For more proof of John's denial, go to John 3 and 28, and that's where John the Baptist reminds the people of what he said. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. In Acts 13 and 25, Paul verified John's witness concerning Christ and his denial of being the Christ. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think you that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. The Greek word arneome is used here for denied. John denied it, arneome. That means to verbally renounce something or to refuse an allegation. John knew exactly who and what he was. He also knew who and what he wasn't as well. That is true. I'm glad that John knew that. I wish that more of our people could find out who they really are instead of trying to be somebody else. I find it interesting that the Jews, the priests, and the Levites were all looking for the Messiah. That's the whole reason they're here. There had to be something within them that had them expecting the Messiah. This is why they were asking about the Christ, the anointed one, or the Mashiach, the Jewish name for the Messiah. After John deflected their question of whether or not he was a Messiah, they doubled down and began to ask more questions. They were trying to pin him down who he truly was. They asked him, well, what then? Are you Elias? <laughs> so yeah. they, they continued their interview of him and they asked him several more questions. If you're not the Messiah, then what? Are, are you Elias? Well, to them, this made perfect sense. The Jews believed that Elijah would come before the Messiah and prepare the way before him. Yeah, and that's based on a few verses from Isaiah and Malachi. I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to read you a couple of them from Malachi. Malachi 3 and 1, it says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. That's Malachi 3 and 1. Malachi 4 and 5 through 6 explains a little more. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. They believed because of the prophecy of Malachi that there was one coming before the Lord, and he was coming to prepare the way of the Lord according to Isaiah, and he was coming before the great day of the Lord. So they believed that he was going to come back as Elijah or like Elijah. The Jews believed Elijah would come at Passover, so they would set the table for him every year at the feast, and they would always have an extra chair and a place set for him. Since they believed Elijah must come before the Messiah, and if John was not the Messiah, then surely John must be Elijah. We know that John denied being Elijah at this time, but Matthew 11 and 14 makes it a little confusing for us because Jesus says that John was Elias. Here's what it says, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. So John says he wasn't, but Jesus says he was. How do we reconcile this obvious contradiction? 
I think Luke reconciles it for us in Luke 1 and 17. It's a description of who and what John would be. And the angel says that John would go before him, speaking of the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So we realize that John has come to fulfill the position of Elijah. That means that John really wasn't Elijah. John wasn't even a reincarnation of Elijah. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, which means that he is the representative of Elijah. John was the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the coming of Elijah. That's exactly right. John answers just as boldly again when he tells them, I am not Elijah. That doesn't deter them either. So they ask him, are you that prophet? What did they mean by that term, that prophet? Well, this is a reference to the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. He said, there'd be a prophet that would arise that would come after him. He said, in him shall you hear. And he gave a description of what that prophet would do. Well, that prophet was also known as the Messiah. So they're asking again, trying to see if he'll admit to being that prophet instead of just a prophet. Now, this statement is reaffirmed in Acts 3 and 22. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. Acts 7 and 37 says, This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear. Most people believe that this prophet would be the Messiah, but there was a division even on that. This is why they differentiated between that prophet and the Messiah at times. The people also believed at one point that Jesus might be that prophet back in John 6 and 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. You know, the ironic part of this is that he really was. That's true. He is that prophet. He was. Jesus Christ was, but John wasn't. Once again, John denied being who they thought he was. Are you the Christ, the Messiah? No. Are you Elias, which was to come? No. Are you that prophet? No. You know, this didn't stop their question, and as we see in the next verse. Yeah, let me go ahead and read that again and get it in our minds. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? Right here in verse 22, we see these priests and Levites press John even further now. They've not gotten their satisfaction met, so they want him to tell them something so they can take it back to Jerusalem. This tells us that these men were sent by the higher authorities. What John was doing was being watched by everyone. They had all eyes on him, that's for sure. They asked him again, who art thou? As they asked him again of his identity, they give their reasoning finally for interrogating him so strongly. They needed to give some kind of an answer to them that sent us. Right here, answer is the Greek word apokresis. Apokresis means an immediate response. We need a quick answer. We need something right now so we can take it back. The people didn't like Jesus' response or his answers either. And John 19 and 9 is a good example of that. They took Jesus into the judgment hall and said unto him, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate didn't like that. These people didn't like it that John was not answering them. John's answer relieved them from the embarrassment of having to drill him with these questions. Well, the problem was this garnered them nothing in return. You know, they were sent by the ruling authorities from the Sanhedrin, and they knew they had to return with some very good information or else. This ought to cause us to see how corrupt this group had already become. The priest and the Levites, they finish up by asking him, well, what do you say about yourself? John wouldn't admit to being the Christ. 
He wouldn't admit to being Elias. He wouldn't admit to being that prophet. So now they demand that he tell them who he thinks he is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think this is somewhat hilarious that they're asking a man to describe who he thinks he is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what was he going to say? I, I think I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> I mean, what, what did they think he was going to say? They asked him their final question, and they pushed him to tell them something about himself. They wanted something to bring back. And right here, they used the Greek word peratero. Peratero means they pushed him even harder. They pushed him more than they had been. They had pressured him. They pushed him. They wanted an immediate answer. They wanted a quick answer. And now they're pushing him hard. In other words, they're basically saying, tell us something beyond what you've given us. We need something more to take back with us. We got to tell them something. Well, they tried to make him go further, you know, in his answers. So this is why John answers as he did in the next verse. But we'll have to get into that next week. For we're out of time today. Oh, wow. I didn't realize how long we'd went, but yeah, I reckon that's what we'll do then. This is an exciting portion of scripture to me because you can see the interrogation going back and forth. And John, it almost appears John's playing cat and mouse with him. He's answering honestly. I'm not saying anything against it, the way he's answering the questions, no. but it almost seems like you can see John's having a good time in what he's doing with him. <laughs> yes, he can. For another part of this podcast, that's one of your favorite parts. We got a question sent in today. Thank God we do. What do we have? All right, here's a question. Can a person sin after sanctification? Oh, my. <laughs> my, my. They're never easy. This is a really, really good question. And it's one that's probably going to get me in trouble with a lot of people. Probably. But I don't mind. It doesn't bother me. I understand no matter how I answer it, somebody's not going to like it. So let me just give you a quick, short answer. Stir the pot. <laughs> My short answer is no. No, a person cannot sin after sanctification. Now, after everybody gets back up from passing out. Explain. Let me explain. <laughs> when we are entirely and completely sanctified, we're going to be in heaven. While we're on earth, we are being sanctified. So the work of sanctification is not over until you get to heaven. When you get to heaven, the work of sanctification turns into glorification. So you're not fully sanctified until you are in heaven. So if you made it to heaven, then no, you cannot sin any longer. Make sense? All right. The work is not completed till we reach heaven. Right now, we're being sanctified. If you were 100% totally sanctified, you would never sin again. But here's the thing. That means that you'll never think another bad thought. That means you would never lust after another person again. That means you would never tell anything close to being untrue. You'd never think a bad thought. Your temper would never get unchecked anymore. Are you living that good? Are you there? You won't be until you make it to heaven. We have an advocate with the Father. If total sanctification here on earth was attainable, we wouldn't need an advocate with the Father. Why would we have to have Jesus to be our advocate for us for when we sin? Because we wouldn't be sinning. Now, I don't teach that people should actively engage in sin. I believe that we need to esteem to live above sin, but you won't fully be totally sanctified until you get to heaven. I know some groups teach that we can be sanctified here on earth and that we can be totally, completely sanctified, entirely sanctified, wholly sanctified. That means that you're unable to sin. If you're fully sanctified, you're fully cleansed, fully perfected, then you could not sin. You're not going to be perfected till you get to heaven. 
Here's the danger in believing that. That means then, if you have no more access to sin, no more desire to sin, if you could finally get fully, totally, entirely, completely sanctified, then you would never sin again. If you would never sin again, you have attained eternal security at sanctification rather than salvation. You're only one step behind the Baptist crowd who believes in eternal security when you believe entire, perfect, complete, whole sanctification here on earth. That will not happen till we get to heaven. So can a person sin after sanctification? No, because you'll be in heaven. Yes, if you still think that you're going to be here on earth and be totally sanctified, yeah, you probably will sin after you feel like you get sanctified for the simple fact you're still in the flesh, you're still on the earth, you're still fighting the devil, you're still living in this fleshly body that's prone to sin. So yes, you'll probably sin after you claim sanctification. But if you really want to talk about being fully sanctified, that's when you get to heaven. Wow. I was concerned about your answer, but the Bible does say those that endure to the end, the same shall be saved. That's right. And those that are saved are the ones that's going to be sanctified. Amen. All right, friends, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news or current events or things going on in our culture are connected to scriptures, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. Friends, remember, keep sending those questions. If you have any question that you're unsure of that you'd like to learn more about, send it to us at this email I just gave you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. And until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday, July the 28th, for special edition number 92, our ninth Q&A. But for me, this I know. Will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.